Morozov Watch 2021. You know, you know, we keep a close eye on Evgeny Morozov on on TMK. Uh, you know, y'all y'all already know, right? Uh, tech critic preeminent, big influence on both me and Ed at like different but overlapping periods of time where we both really got into tech criticism uh, 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 because of reading Evgeny Morozov and like the style that we do it really has you know has a lot indebted to to his style and his analysis and you know he's he's gone quiet recently you know he's busy with the syllabus and all of that stuff but my man is just ramped up uh recently just lots of tweets just tweeting out whole bibliographies of critical takes uh, uh you know academic articles and other stuff on crypto and finance and web3 and development all in preparation according to our our, our sources uh that there's going to be a very big new blockbuster article from evgeny coming out like you know end of this month beginning of next month sometime around then and you you said it's like a 16k like a 16,000 word um essay i've not seen that re uh, reported anywhere um but, you know so we're 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 going to we're going to edward Angueso jr is on the street right now right. with an update on morozov watch <laughs> yeah no i think i so I'm, I like his particularly long broadsides because, you know, I think about surveillance capitalism came out around the time where I was trying to figure out my thesis uh, in college, like the capstone project. And the analysis in there saved me from flirting with Zuboff's uh, framework, but also opened up new avenues of thinking about how gig work and algorithmic management was actually working and performing, right? That essay, that review where he ripped apart the framework, the historiography, the bibliography, the analysis, and some of the lack of citation for key arguments of surveillance capitalism and arguing that it was a tautological essay that came from a line of tautological scholars, um, you know, functionalists or sociologists that were her mentor and her mentor's mentor and so on and so forth. And so for the past month, uh, this man has been uh, uh, sharing some of the most critical academic essays and also individual takes, but academic essays I've ever seen, a lot of them I've not really seen before. Um, which uh, surprised me because I would, you know, over the past year, I have been trying to read more and more critical uh, crypto takes um, in the academy because they are, they do, they go beyond what like my usual frame of analysis or reference point is, right? Like we had in our last episode where they talk about smart contracts, you know, a lot of the work is really reflecting on what Bitcoin, what cryptocurrency, what NFTs what decentralized governance, what do all these things mean for institutions, for relations, for uh, social connections, for political problems um, in ways that are much more interesting than what you're allowed to do really when you cover it day to day, or even if you do longer feature pieces. Like lo and behold, I've been following quickly and talked with him a little bit about how he's got a really crypto, a uh, really intense broadside that is supposed to be against crypto web 3.0 um i think you know when we were talking on twitter the other day he said something like it was uh it's supposed to or part of it will delineate 
I think part of what he's finding in his analysis is that, you know, this period of time has much more useful idiots um, who are dumber and more useful than previous periods of like that have he's focused on. And I think that's pretty much largely the case, you know, as we'll talk about today in two of the really critical papers that he cited, but also in a really a, a fun um, a fun essay by friend of the show, Prague Khan, Kana, um, and by friend of the show, I mean enemy, um, <laughs> um, mortal enemy. Uh, and uh, he has written a piece with another friend of the show slash mortal enemy, um, Balai, Balai, I I've never Balaji been able to say There we go. There we go. Thank you for saving me. I mean, just um, a, 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 a terrible duo of people to write an article together. Like, you know, it's going to be the most vapid bullshit you've ever read in your life, but also like in a really uh, dangerous way, not just a yeah. funny way. <laughs> and I think so, you know, what we'll do is to ease you into the sort of framework that we'll be talking through in the critical uh, framework. We'll talk through this great protocol p- politics piece to give you a sense of uh, what, like, what self-styled, very intelligent people are saying about crypto. And this piece is in foreign policy. It's called Great Pro- Protocol Politics. The 21st century doesn't belong to China, the United States, or Silicon Valley. It belongs to the internet. And then, <laughs> so we'll talk about this and then we'll go through to, I think we'll visit a little bit because it is a, a longer one. We'll visit a little bit, one of Morozov's critiques of Parag Khan, I think like a decade ago, that is illustrative of the limitations of that man's thinking, but also should sound familiar to anyone who's listening to some of the most vocal DAO, decentralized governance, cryptocurrency boosters. Wrapping up Morozov watch before we really get into the meat of things. He also tweeted out a, a picture uh, of a of a two-hour recording that he did with Fernando Flores, who uh, initiated Project Cybersyn, you know, Go back and listen to our episode if you haven't already. Our, our two-part episodes on Project Cybersyn in Chile. Very interesting. You know, he, uh, his tweet has just finished an intense two-hour conversation with Fernando Flores about cybernetics, Chile's Allende, Habermas, and Foucault, the limitations of the blockchain, and so much more. And I mean. My, my man is out. He's doing the work. He's doing some real good research. I don't know if this, uh, this, this, this conversation with Flores is like for a podcast or something. Uh, I suspect he was just doing an interview for whatever it yeah. is that he's working on. Uh, but you know, leave it to Morozov to, to, to have a two hour conversation with the big hitters. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, it'll be a fun one. I think um, Cybersyn is a project we love or fascinated by. It's a lot that everyone can really learn from it. And so, you know, one day we'll try to get that dude on too. And why, and anybody else who's connected to it, you know, as we, you know, they're really interesting figures um, there that I have mm. not gotten their due historically and that we will, we'll do them justice. Yeah, honestly, I didn't know he was still alive. <laughs> as yeah, well. that, no. that happened a long time ago, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, that ends Morozov Watch. It won't be the first or the last time we do it because, you know, when, when that big essay from Evgeny drops, uh, eventually, you know, you know we're going to be spending an episode talking about it. We got to. So, but until then, we got to lay the groundwork just to understand this big blockbuster essay that's coming down the pipeline by looking at some of the, the articles 
He's been citing, you know, the critical research on, on crypto and finance and development, um, and as well, some of the bullshit stuff that he's been, that he's pushing back against, like this, uh, Parag Khanna and Balaji Sirnivasan article in foreign policy. And let me tell you, is there some bullshit? There's <laughs> some, there's a lot of fucking bullshit in there. Dear Evgeny, I'm going to take it as a sign that you don't like this episode if this doesn't appear on the syllabus. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 124 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. So we already had a preamble. Let's just get right into it. Uh, Ed, what's up with this foreign policy article by Parag Khanna and Balaji Sirnivasan? Well, here is the big thing. The promise here is that... um, is bullshit. Uh, but the premise is that the internet is going to revolutionize everything. We've heard it before. We've heard it every single fucking year. We heard it um, most specifically, uh, as Prakana insisted, but previously, the last time he really did this was during the Arab Spring, but we'll ignore that for now and we'll, fo- and we'll talk about right now. So I'll read the essay. I think the, I think the intro is an important sort of framing for this, right? In a pair of recent essays... Political scientist Ian Bremmer contends that big tech companies will reshape the global order, while FP columnist Stefan Waltz friendly rejoinders that states will remain predominant. We take a third view. Not only has technology already changed the global order, but it is also changing the nature of both companies and states themselves. The 21st century belongs not to China or the United States, nor to tech companies as traditionally understood. It belongs to the internet. This is true for many reasons, of which perhaps the most important is the rise of decentralized protocols like Bitcoin and Ethereum that are controlled by neither states nor companies. To Bremer's credit, he does mention them, but he still underrates their importance. Many of the global technology firm's weaknesses, both he and Walt discuss, that they're typically domiciled in the United States or China, that they rely on those jurisdictions for contract enforcement, that they don't have a state's political legitimacy, and that their exercise of power has already caused the global backlash, are addressed by the introduction of crypto protocols, which can safeguard property and execute contracts beyond the boundaries of traditional nation states. But technology's challenge to traditional geopolitics goes beyond crypto protocols, tech companies, and even digital space itself as it has begun reshaping the physical world. Here are 10 ways in which we are transitioning from an age of geopolitics to one of technopolitics. Motherfucker stole my word. (laughs) I wrote a book about technopolitics. (laughs) I know, it's all down for that one, Jathan. I wanted you to hear it. I wanted you to hear it. When I saw that, I said, I'm I'm not going to tell Jathan that's in there. It's going to be a treat. 
<laughs> I'm going to trademark uh, Potemkin AI and put it on t-shirts. Yeah, dude. Jeremy, honestly, because uh, we, you know, s- some people, in the, you know, may use terms like techno politics or Potemkin AI, and we don't want that. <laughs> you know, we're going to... We we um we do not believe in IP, but cite your fucking sources, my friends. But <laughs> Prakana, where do we begin? Network proximity is now on par with physical geography. Sounds cool, right? He talks, you know, uh, the the premise here is that the internet is adding a new dimension, and it's not a passive data space, you know, neo space, whatever the fuck the term was that they might have used in the previous years. That it's the internet and it allows interactions that have consequences in the real world he uses a metaphor of a digital atlantis quote a new continent floating in the cloud where old powers compete and new powers arise within this cloud continent the unit of distance between two people is not the travel time between their positions on the globe but rather the degrees of separation in their social networks so if you are mutuals uh, with, um, fuck, I don't know, uh, Pete Davidson, then you're more powerful. <laughs> you're more powerful than than. Uh, or if you're no, maybe we should we should use politics and politics. If you are mutuals with AOC, you're more powerful than someone who might. You might be more powerful than someone who lives in uh, in um, DC, right? And, and you know, he may say that's a bastardization of the metaphor, but it is just as stupid uh, because. Well, you know, there are a few things here. One, the cloud is not like this novel unit. Um, there's this really great book I highly recommend. Um, it's called The Prehistory of the Cloud. Um, and it talks about how the cloud, it's uh, by Tung Hoi Hu. It talks about how the cloud is, you know, decades old, right? It has existed in one form or another in different forms. And that what we call the cloud is not some discrete object. It's a metaphor that doesn't even properly address what it actually is. And whenever people use it, you should be suspect of them, basically. Um, And the reason is similar to the internet, similar to what we talked about, what we've been talking about with um, Wendy Chun's book. These are words that are used in service of like an ideological project that both simplifies and flattens the reality of the thing. There's no such thing as the internet, right? When we speak about the internet, we're speaking about a wide variety of things that are not the same, that are not all even at the same realm of physical or digital existence. Some of it is hardware, some of it is software, some of it is infrastructure, some of it is the individuals, some of it is the networks themselves, you know, like it's not any one coherent thing and it's not even the emergent phenomenon of all these things, right? Because there are some parts of this whole entire system that don't have anything to do with the internet as we know, experience, and speak about. You're not experiencing or dealing with or interfacing with every single part of the system or even its emergent property. You're dealing with a very narrow section of the internet that's curtailed for a very narrow section of the population, which is consumers, right? You don't deal, you're not dealing with anything that has to do with the business to business side, or you're not doing anything on the fucking dark web. You're not doing anything that has to do with infrastructure. You're not doing anything that has to do with any of the other things that keep the internet up, right? You're only dealing with these very small section of web portals. And similarly, when you're talking about the cloud, it is, it's, you know, as, as his next Paragraph explains, it really is just a generalizing metaphor to plug in whatever political argument you want to make. He says, this means anyone who can put themselves near anyone else by simply following them on social networks, 
or keep others away by blocking their accounts on those same networks. No plane ticket required. Any floating entity within this cloud continent can likewise attempt to interact with any other by pinging the right IP address for the purpose of anything from transactions to cyber invasions. No pre-existing proximity required. And so the idea is that now, network proximity, because it is both, because it transcends spatial dimensions and is not limited by the temporal aspect of uh, a spatial travel, and because it also has real-world consequences, that it disrupts uh, the basic uh, understanding of geopolitics about citizenship, right, about whether or not you need to, you know, because... You know, as he goes on and, and argues, citizenship in the old world, you know, or the, you know, citizenship is complicated by things like internet access, right? Because now the argument is that you can access the whole world now. You can access the cloud now. You don't need to migrate anywhere. You don't need to go anywhere. You just plug in and tune out. And that you can also, you know, encrypt yourself or that the cloud and that various digital services can be encrypted. So now that like you actually have property that is uh, yours, you have property rights that really can't be coerced or, imp- or away or impeached away or you- with force, right? Or with legislature, whatever the fuck it is, right? And so now this disrupts everything we know about how- what's a citizen, what's migration, what's power, what's property, what's, ha- what's coercion, you know, because you can, because uh, of the cloud. I mean, Tell it to all the refugees who are dying in the channel, be- like, yo, between France and the UK because their boats sink, right? Yeah. Tell it to all the refugees dying in the Mediterranean, right? Like, oh, they just didn't know. They didn't know that, that things like citizenship and migration, uh, things like geography don't, they don't matter anymore. They didn't read this essay. If they had read this essay, they would have known that they didn't need to risk their lives to get to another place, uh, to seek asylum somewhere else. Uh, they, they could have just logged on, log on and drop off, buddy. Uh, you know, they, mm-hmm. they just, they just didn't know. They, they should have read this essay. Then they, you know, they, they would have saved their own lives by, uh, instead of trying to you know uh, find freedom or just even security somewhere else and risk their lives doing so they 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 could have just gone to a starbucks and logged on to the wi-fi yeah you know and it's also that it's so stupid right (laughs) like it's so stupid to say that network proximity is on par with physical geography as a way to say that geopolitics is shifting because it ignores the like the the shortcomings of network proximity and also how easy it is to just deny it from people. I mean, like this metaphor still reeks of the 2011, 2012, you can't stop the internet. The internet dem- is a democratizing force. We just have to get it everywhere. Um, and, it, and it, like you said, like you pointed out, it ignores all the real people all over the world who don't have access to it and don't, as a result, aren't in this new world, but still exist, live in the old one. Nothing is really being disrupted there. Nor are the states that they're a party to being disrupted, nor are the larger structures that are forcing them to migrate or larger forces that are forcing them to migrate, right? That are forcing them to leave one area and move to another and be turned away or accepted, changing because of the digital world, right? To say, to say nothing of like the fact that network proximity and, and the way in which networks are run in our world is largely private concentrations of capital, that are hard to fucking regulate, right? That are hard to pin down. That are that are running these networks in of their uh, in of them for their own interests, right? 
in in these walled gardens and platforms that are not like part of some evanescent is I don't even know if that's the right fucking word, but like this 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 ephemeral idea idea of the internet being this mist through we're all walking through and you can just get a bit of the internet. You just gotta put your hand out there and the internet is there, the cloud is there, and then you can you can uh, plug into it. The reality is the network proximity he's talking about is everybody within closed gardens and walled platforms can interact with each other in ways that the corporations that he's saying are not going to disrupt geopolitics dictate, right? Okay, so this seems like someone who's not really understanding how the internet actually works in the modern era, doesn't really understand how internet connections are mediated by private corporations and states still in the modern era, and believes a little too much in the idea that decentralized networks as they exist right now, being solely connected to like a, a speculative financial asset will in any way, shape or form be, or yeah, in any way, shape or form be the immediate short term or even medium term um, model for connections over the internet, right? When the reality is, as we've been looking, the internet, you can have these, you can have this decentralization going on, but as we'll talk about in some of these papers, it's been used to, accelerate centralization in other more important areas of the world, right? So if you're saying that network proximity is disrupting physical geography, when you actually look closer, it's just reinforcing the control of certain currencies, the control of certain states, the control of certain corporations. How is that disrupting geopolitics in the 21st century? They live in a fantasy world and it's, it's, it, it annoys me and and baffles me to no end that like you know Parag Khanna is a is a self-described futurist right he's the founder of this like uh, consulting firm or whatever called Future Map uh, and and you know Balaji Srinivasan you know we've talked about his ass before but you know he's a he's a big venture capitalist uh, you know a, a, a quote unquote angel investor and an entrepreneur it's annoying and baffling to no end that motherfuckers can have one idea like 15 years ago, one conception of the world, of technology, of geopolitics, and never evolve in their thinking ever again, right? Like it's so, it, it, it feels so antiquated, so quaint in a lot of ways to be putting forward these arguments in this, the you know, the December of the year 2021, right? Like how, how are you doing this? And yet they are doing it uh, very seriously and being taken seriously as well. Right? Like, I mean, this is a, you know, this is an article in foreign policy, right? Like, uh, you know, a premier rag of foreign uh, policy and geopolitical thought leadership or whatever bullshit. Uh, It's, 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 it's insane to me, right? It's it's absolutely insane. It really does show um, as well. You you mentioned this in our uh, last premium episode on Lena Khan, where you were like, our thinking about the digital world is still in large part so uh, so undeveloped, right? Still so naive um, in a lot of ways, and and this really proves that people that the internet quote unquote, you know, I'm putting it in quotes here in the same way that like Morozov put the internet in quotes in his 
2013 book, uh, how you know to save everything. Click here, where he's talking about internet centrism as this like ideology and propaganda that you know is like scales over the eyes of people trying to understand uh, technology and 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 society and politics. Uh, it, it's it's absolutely wild that that can still be the case now that these people still have a platform. It's a real indictment. Of, of, of our society and of our organs of thought um, that people like this would still have a platform, still be taken as a, you know, very serious capital V, capital S uh, people. Um, you know, the, even the, even the analogy that they try to draw, like, you know, this is, this is a digital Atlantis, a, a cloud continent. That makes no fucking sense whatsoever. You know, I've seen other analogies of like the internet is actually more like an iceberg, right? Like we only <laughs> access, uh, you know, the very tip of it and then submerged beneath there's, uh, you know, the dark web and 4chan and, you know, all these other, uh, you know, bigger part, like all these other parts of the internet that are much bigger than the, the surface level that we access. But even that is not a good metaphor, right? Like if we're going to try to draw really bad metaphors, I mean, a better one is more so that it's a, it's a series of walled gardens. Um, and then beneath those walled gardens is like strata upon strata upon strata of infrastructure and protocols and, uh, you know, technical standards, um, political uh, fights and conflicts of values, uh, you know, economic interest, right? Like, uh, you know, strata upon strata of politics, economics, technology, infrastructure, all that other stuff. Even then, like, it's just, it's just bad. It's bad thinking to, to, to see, like, to say that network proximity is making physical geography, you know, e equating the two and really saying that, you know, the death of geography, the death of space. It, it's like, it's like they saw, you know, the, that aphorism from Marx, right? The, uh, the annihilation of space by time. Um, and then, and then they, you know, were like, yeah, man, this is, this is, you know, they, they took a big rip off of some, some fucking mids and they were like, yeah, man, this is, this is the annihilation of space by by information, by data. <laughs> it's like, no, it's not. <laughs> it's really... <laughs> The next entry, where you would also be forgiven for thinking they took a giant fucking rip of some weed, especially because one of the things they imagine here are called CBDCs, uh, short, <laughs> <laughs> short for Central Bank Digital Currencies. But basically, the thrust here is they use a bad metaphor and a misunderstanding of what actually happened to media by saying, what happened to newspapers? First, they all went online, then Google News indexed them, and then local papers found that their geographic monopolies had evaporated because they didn't have to distribute physical newspapers via trucks. That is not what fucking happened. <laughs> that is not the reason why physical newspapers have entered a freefall. They've entered a freefall because of, of a, a concentrated attack by capital buying out, hollowing out, and then shuttering news operation after news operation after news operation, and then the growth and reliance on these 
uh, business models, specifically ad uh, revenue driven ones, right? That are fickles fuck, honestly, or that are propped up on what is likely a massive fucking bubble. Another one of the many bubbles being the advertiser uh, bubble, because it's not even clear if advertising works. I mean, it almost certainly doesn't, but it's not even clear in the industry, right? Among the shills, it's not clear that ad tech works at all. Okay. And so there's, so the media industry has been subject to all sorts of ridiculous reshufflings, restructurings, and these attacks by capital to extract more and more returns. Um, that has nothing to do with this metaphor. But of course, they're not really interested in actually painting an accurate picture because they're trying to make a point, which is that they believe that uh, national currencies are going to end up competing with cryptocurrencies, right? Because, quote, individuals and institutions hold digital wallets filled with various assets that can be traded against one another. And then there's going to be the emergence of the CBDCs, which will be traded against every other asset in a gigantic table called a DeFi matrix, short for decentralized finance. And so, you know, the most euphoric bit here is, quote, we are going to enter an age of global monetary competition where national currencies must earn their place in someone's wallet portfolio every hour of every day, even among citizens of their own countries. The digital version of the Japanese yen will be plunged into head-to-head global competition with the Swiss franc, the Brazilian real, and any other asset with an open capital account, including Bitcoin. Everyone becomes a foreign exchange trader all the time, and only the best national currencies or cryptocurrencies are ever held by anyone. Rather than the current environment of unchecked inflation and competitive devaluation, the DeFi matrix imposes a new kind of discipline on national currencies as billions of people make individual choices regarding which currencies to hold or not hold. Why the fuck do they really honestly think that (laughs) that individuals are going to be constantly checking which currency they should park their money into and not doing things that matter, like living life, right? Like working to survive, like doing their fucking jobs, like taking care of their children and their families that most people right now could get access to crypto. Why do they not have crypto? I mean, if you actually really dig and think about it, that might give you a good reason to, to pump the brakes on this euphoric vision thinking that there's going to be DeFi matrix. I mean, it helps that they don't give years, right? They, they learned from Ray Kurzweil. Uh, don't give out years because then the years come and people are like, oh, <laughs> this didn't happen. If you can you know, sketch out a vague portrait and the vague portrait here is that for some reason, when there are a thousand cryptocurrencies offered, as if there aren't already a thousand offered, these ones will be different because they'll be digital versions of existing ones or ones issued by central banks. And then everyone will constantly be trading on their phones or apps or on these DeFi, uh, uh, you know, in the DeFi matrix against every other asset. If you look in crypto, and as we'll talk about again, if you look at decentralized finance, if you look at crypto, a lot of this stuff is not decentralized. It's just not. It's on. It's not even like it's not accurate, right? It, a lot of the if you sit down and ask yourself, a lot of the mechanisms. How are you? If you have a decentralized system, how are you going to ensure that you have capital? Are you going to ensure you have capital reserves? How are you going to ensure that you can loan out money to people? How are you going to ensure that you can also incentivize people to stay on your platform so that you can have liquidity, so that you can offer up these tokens, or incentivize people to keep coming back with the belief that their token will grow in value and that you can provide additional value? I mean, all of these things, in one way or another, require 
the introduction of centralization mechanism. And it is a little dishonest to skim over that to say, okay, we're going to have decentralized finance, but central banks. And the central banks are going to be issuing digital versions that will compete on the decentralized finance exchange, whatever the fuck we're going to be making. And that people will all be making their own decisions, billions of people making their own collective individual decisions, when in reality, what is the, what's the reality now? Do billions of people make their own decisions about where their investment is going? Do billions of people make their own decisions? Would they even want to make their own decisions about where any, most of their money is parked? They choose a place or they choose an agent to do it for them. Not because they're idiots and they can't learn it themselves, but because it makes more, it makes more sense. You'll get a larger return. It'll occupy less of your time. And frankly, it doesn't really fucking matter for most people who are, whose returns are going to be so minuscule right or who are living on such an edge that it's not worth it trying to risk your your digital wallet portfolio to make like a 10% return i mean this is i i feel like this one balaji wrote <laughs> it, it reminds me of a couple of things. So one is, uh, I mean, yeah, no, you, you're exactly right. The, the idea that uh, everyone becomes a foreign exchange trader is, is so, on its, so on its face dumb, just such a dumb thing. But it also really links up as well to remember when the ACA, uh, you know, the Affordable Care Act came in and there were all the like, you know, healthcare marketplace um, and, and, you know, you had all these policy wonks, people like Ezra Klein being like, oh, it's so fun to go on the, the, the healthcare marketplace and be, you know, in like real time doing comparisons, uh, you know, on the, on the auction, you know, you find in the right policy that's, that's, that's good for you. Like, you know, it's all these wonks that think some, that think stuff like that, stuff that is designed to be immensely complex, requires expertise, requires a lot of time and knowledge to actually navigate in an effective way. Uh, it's all the stuff that was designed for and by these wonks who find that shit to be really fun, right? Who, who like, you know, spend their free time uh, messing around in spreadsheets or whatever. Uh, that's not how most people operate. It's also the same kind of like solipsism that sees people like Parakana and Balaji Sinivasa and be like, everyone's going to be a foreign exchange trader, right? Everyone's going to be in real time, you know, hour by hour checking the, the, the ups and downs of their, you know, digital currency that they've got invested in. They're going to be moving money around, right? They're going to be doing these day trading on Robinhood or whatever the fuck. Like, it's because people like, Balaji and, and Parag uh, find that stuff really fun and interesting because also there's no risk. There's no risk to them, right? They if they make a bad trade, oops, you know they lose a little bit of money. But they're you know they are wealthy. They are wealthy beyond our imagination. It doesn't matter to them. It's a casino, right? That's it's all a casino. And the idea that this is like the own the preferred or only way um, to live our lives that everyone needs to start doing this is just a complete misunderstanding of what it means to be a person in the world. I mean, it's really what it boils down to. It also makes me think as well that the uh, Financial Times recently had a very funny graph where it showed that uh, ARC, which is, you know, Kathy Woods, like active investment management group that pitches, you know, Kathy Woods, who runs ARC, pitches herself as this servant who, uh, you know, is able to actively pick the hottest emerging tech stocks. Uh, and, and she's managed to uh, fool a bunch and seduce a bunch of investors into her orbit. And there is a really interesting graph that showed 
that at the beginning of January, uh, like January and February 2021, the ARK Disruptive Innovation ETF or Exchange Traded Fund, right? A basket of stocks that Kathy Woods has, uh, you know, personally picked as the best emerging tech stocks to uh, put your money into, right? It really is shot up uh, in the beginning of January 2021. But then come like March, it drastically fell and it just stayed falling and falling. And how do you think it has compared, uh, to, you know, this in terms of like its year growth and, and, uh, and, and degrowth this year compared to like, you know, the S and P 500 and the Russell 3000 growth, right? These like more stalwart indexes that we've talked about in our episodes on indices, uh, and, and exchange traded funds. So. The S&P 500, by the end of the year, just a steady growth upwards and is ending at a 30% growth rate. The Russell 3000 growth index, uh, same thing, uh, nearly a 30% growth rate by the end of the year. Where do you think the ARK Disruptive Innovation ETF is at? Uh, it's at a cool negative 18% growth rate <laughs> for the end of yes. the year. It's extremely funny to think that, um, that what you ought to do with your hard earned money is do day trading, is do, is actively pick stocks, is be a foreign exchange trader, uh, you know, shuffling your money from Bitcoin to Dogecoin to Shiba Inu coin to, you know, Japan's central bank digital currency to the Brazilian real, you know, blah, blah, blah. Instead of just parking that money in an ETF run by, you know, BlackRock or Vanguard, much as we hate them, right? They are, they, they, they are steady, safe growth. Uh, and instead, what, what, what Balaji and Parag are asking you to do, um, is to one, spend a lot of time every single day trying to actively pick stocks and play on the digital currency, uh, exchange. Um, and, and what do you get in return for that? Uh, you lose a big part of your money. Um, that's the price you pay, right? But that's the future, right. Ed. That's the future. Right. I'm, a, I'm imagining uh, that scene from Arrested Development when the mom says to Michael, well, how much could a banana cost, Michael? $10? <laughs> that's what I imagine these, these, the, their worldviews like. Any Anytime some idiot thinks that, you know, they could just throw large sums of money around. And to most people, $10,000 is a large sum of money. Like, that's immediately what I think of. Yeah. You don't want to live in a world where your net worth uh, could be wiped out at any, at a, at a moment's notice, because uh, as, as um, you know, was put on the re recent, very good episode of tech won't save us uh, with, oh, I, for I forget his name, but it was about um, crypto and DeFi as well. Like they ran a really good episode last week, uh, coincidentally alongside our episode on DAOs. But right, uh, the, the guy Paris was, was interviewing was like, you know, do you really want to live in a world where your net worth could be totally wiped out because Elon Musk, Times Person of the Year, tweeted, like had a bad day and tweeted two emojis, right? And then it's like all of a sudden the, you know, the digital currency that you've been uh, spending hours a day trying to do foreign exchange trading uh, just plummets, and and suddenly the holidays are here, and you are uh, you know deep deep in uh, in the negatives. That's personally that's what I want because that would just give me the motivation to hustle harder. You know, like if I lost my entire net worth in one day, I'm I'm hustling. 
You know, I'm hitting, I'm hitting the fucking books. I'm hitting the streets. I'm going to make it all back. That's just me. You know, that's why I'm, that's why I'm loaded up in crypto. So I got Dogecoin, Ethereum, Bitcoin, Monkey Jizz, um, Onion Coin, Poop Coin, Squid Game Coin, um, <laughs> Mongoose Coin, Hamster Coin, Safe Moon, um, Shiba Inu. Um, you know, I've got everything. Jathan had all those coins back in the 90s, but we just called those pogs. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say pogs. <laughs> <laughs> Starting to get the point, but there are a few I want to land on. Three is the remote economy has created a talent market for citizens. Uh, basically, the argument is uh, that if uh, people are allowed to leave and r- remote work, then they will live anywhere that they want to, and thus they can migrate anywhere they want to. And that, as a result, governments have less control over people. Um, and uh, they have less control over people because everything is a marketplace, and the and the value that you're that's being rendered for your services to the state are not beating what you could get elsewhere. Right? That's basically the argument there. I'm not even next. Uh, bits are finally reshaping atoms. I hate this bits atoms metaphor so fucking much. <laughs> but, um, it's so anti-materialist, <laughs> which is funny because it's being used to argue. Uh, about the importance of materialism. <laughs> so basically, this argument is saying that the digital and the physical are discrete, but also intermingling. Digital technologies are important. Physical technologies are important. Di- governments and states, for some reason, they believe only focused on digital technologies because physical, they claim, was stagnating. But now physical is back and in- everything is infrastructure. And so we're, you know, we're building it back better, baby. And so you need to be invested in both or you'll get ahead in neither. Again, uh, the nice way to say this is that uh, to, to argue that physical technology has been stagnating what is to misunderstand the framing, right? This remind, for example, the, there's a there's a really interesting book. I think it's by Jeremy Gordon called the the, the rise and decline of uh, American growth, right? Or it's it's basically focused on why the rate of economic growth in the country has declined, and argues that there are specific technologies that had larger impacts at specific moments in American history than successive technologies, right, or developments. But then reframes it also in like a real Material sense and like, okay, the reason why this technology had a bigger impact is because of how huge the jump from, you know, labor say, labor before the, the introduction of these household appliances and afterwards, right? That freed up a huge amount of labor that could then be applied to other things or that also, you know, allowed individual or that allowed housework to shift radically, right? This or that. Arguments along those sort of lines. Um, the argument around here then kind of argues that I think it's a weird misapplication of that by looking at like economic growth 
Um, they don't really give concrete examples of how physical technology has not advanced. And I think that's because they're kind of, they don't have any, or maybe they do, but they want you to also, they want to deploy and use the, the association with innovation that we all have with the digital, right? To say that, yeah, look, you know, like, um, digital technology is going ahead. Software has given us so many things. We have on-demand food delivery now. We have on-demand healthcare now. We have uh, surveillance uh, apparatuses inside your phone everywhere. We have self-driving cars. We have all these cool um, software edits. But as they talk about, right, there are other physical advancements. I think the, the, well, the ones they talk about immediately are drones, robotics, self-driving cars, which don't exist, brain-machine interfaces, which don't exist, vaccine passports, gene editing tools like CISPR, CRISPR, um, and mRNA vaccines, a return of nuclear power, space race, supersonic aircraft. I mean, these are things that like have not been finally reinvigorated in the physical world, as they say, but have been consistently and diligently invested in and developed for the past 30 and 40 years. I mean, we can talk about robotics. We can talk, you know, like our episode on prosthetics, right? And where we talked about the way in which the specific development of prosthetics has been driven in a pretty specific direction by the the designs and the and the desires of hobbyists, of military um, contractors, and of military in of itself, as opposed to people who are born with prosthetics. Uh, or who born needing prosthetics, right? Born with have a limb, right? Or because of an injury or health condition, lose a limb and ha- and have to get an amputation. To say that the development of the technology is finally getting somewhere because of the advancement of the digital feels a little stupid, or it because it feels a little bit like it's ignoring the actual political economy and why certain technologies advance and why others don't. Why is it that the only examples they really use of physical innovation are military technology? Hmm, that would be mm-hmm. a good that would be an interesting mm-hmm. thing to reflect on. Why is it that it what is that because physical technology is really fucking hard to develop? Or is it because for some reason we only pour hundreds of billions of dollars consistently every single year into a very specific section of the economy that develops technologies that you're used to kill people? I wonder what it is. I wonder why it, why that's the case. But of course, they're not really interested in that question or interested in part of that question and not the part that undermines. And and I mean, not to mention as well that like, you know, Balaji's friends over at uh, A16Z and Dreesen Horowitz, you know, some of the, the, the partners at that venture capitalist firm have been going hard on Twitter lately about uh, the, the need for VC, you know, Silicon Valley VC to fully embrace the military and the defense industry. Of course. But, Fuck but it's just, it's just <laughs> natural forces, right? You just, you know, who knows? Who knows well, which way the wind blows, why money goes some ways and doesn't go other ways. Who knows? Now, and then this moves us to a really interesting one that's pretty, I think it's a long one because it's a bit of a hot take from them, right? And their argument here is um, cloud-based regulators are out-competing state-based regulators. Uh, so what does that mean? I'm going to read this without losing my mind. Traditional taxi regulators might do cursory inspections of medallion holders, but they do not regulate their drivers as aggressively as Uber, Lyft, Grab, Gojek, and Didi do. That is, they do not use GPS to track every ride, ensure both driver and rider can complete the transaction, record star ratings from both parties, and use the full panoply of tools available to a modern cloud regulator. 
In a real sense, these tech companies are more modern regulators than the paper-based models of the 20th century. As such, they've suffered significant backlash from legacy actors that want to preserve their control over the system, perhaps best exemplified by ongoing attempts to legislatively squash the square peg of the 21st century sharing economy into this round hole of the 20th century lifetime employment. All right. Whew, okay, so I mean, their argument here is basically that uh, surveillance capitalism is actually good because it squashes in, 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 uh, inefficiencies that are inherent in a labor-centric model, right? So that you know they use examples that these the the sharing economy. I mean, the fact that he's still using sharing economy. There's not the sharing economy is an outdated descriptor of the uh, the gig economy. That's a PR term that was initially offered when it was saying that like, oh, you know. Airbnb lets you share your home um, and make income on the side while you live there. Um, you can rent your car on the side for use of other people while you use it for other things because you leave it idling in a parking lot or in your driveway all day anyway. Um, these are idle assets. You should share them with other people help them help yourself. That's not actually like we know for over a decade, that's not actually how these things work. The sharing economy is a bullshit term because in reality, you have to totally convert that asset for use on the gig economy. And if you don't, then everything you don't, you know, if you don't fully convert it, you're not making anywhere near enough to justify using it. And if you do fully convert it, then you run it shot at such a high rate that you probably, your margins are going to be thin. If you're turning your home into an Airbnb, one, you like, do you have another home to live in? But you, you probably don't, right? But if you're turning a home into your Airbnb, you're either a landlord or maybe you're someone who is deciding that you're going to share your home with strangers, right? You're going to have significantly increased maintenance costs, energy costs, utility costs. And similarly, if you're driving for Uber, if you're driving for Lyft, if you're driving for Grab, if you're driving for Gojek, if you're grabbing for D, uh, driving for DD, you're going to have to pay for maintenance. You're going to have to pay for gas. You're going to have to pay for insurance. You're going to have to pay for all these things as your car wears down because you're accumulating mileage on it. The idea that this is a sharing economy is the fir- is one of the many red flags here with this stupid fucking section, right? But then there's also the argument here that they go on and they say that these companies are already better than the state regulators. They're, they use an example of GoToGroup, which is a parent company of Gojek. And they say, okay, look, they provides 2% of Indonesia's $1 trillion GDP. It creates millions of jobs. It brings 2 billion annual transactions to the taxable formal economy, right? And so it has a huge base of public support. This is somehow makes it a, you know, an equal standing with state uh, actors. Uh, then it also says that, look, they're not going to be companies forever. They'll actually end up being phased out by protocols that will, quote, split the upside with their users. And so from a political standpoint, he writes, anti-technology activists have only been able to muster slim and contentious margins of support for new regulations because app workers did not profit as much from the rise of the sharing economy as app developers, giving a wedge for class actions. The next step, however, is full Web3 based decentralization of online marketplaces and sharing economy services, which is already well underway via peer to peer trading of cryptocurrency, so-called decentralized exchanges. These new forms of transnational regulation where app users have a stake and a say in how their platforms are run will expand beyond cryptocurrencies to the peer-to-peer exchange of other goods and services over time. No, they will not. They will not. What are you talking about? This guy's what the situ what first of all, the situation, it's not app workers are not angry because they do not get as much profit 
from the rise of gig work as app developers, which is not, which is a weird way to, which is also a very conscious, deceptive way to wipe away the fact that it's not app developers, it's massive fucking companies that are exploiting them and squeezing out as much money as possible and then properly compensating white collar engineers. The, the reason that app workers are angry is because they're being worked into the fucking ground. There's a reason why there's an almost an, an above 90% burn rate every year. There's a reason why there's such a high precarity among these uh, among drivers, whether they're, they're migrants in New York City, for as an example, right? Whether they're taxi drivers in other cities that are being competed up against and then transitioning to the platform and then still struggling to survive. It's not that they didn't get properly compensated. It's that they're getting driven to early deaths, right? And to horrible, depressing situations because to, for the apps to work, it has to burn through a huge labor supply, right? It has to subsidize rides, lock communities and individuals in, burn through drivers, lock long-term full-time drivers on who do most of the rides, and then try to figure out this delicate dancing act where you subsidize rides, but you extract as much as possible elsewhere, and then you incentivize drivers to stay long-term, but you need to sink them into a hole long enough so that they will not leave and they cannot leave, whether that means you give them an aggressive loan, whether that means you set up weird rates, whether that means you have weird uh, restrictions on when they can drive. You do whatever you can to phase out as many drivers as possible but keep the ones who work full time because that's where you make your money back by having them drive the growth of the platform. I don't know what the fuck he's talking about with the web three decentralized marketplaces. It's not real. It's not, it's just, it's, it's words. It's just words that are coming out of his mouth, right? The, the, the idea here and the movement here and the rhetorical moves you should be seeing here is quickly saying this is good. This is a good thing. Uber is good. Lyft is good. Grab is good. They do these things that they don't actually do. Uh, anyone who disagrees is anti-technology. Technology is changing the world, going to change the world, and you're staying behind if you don't let technology free. I mean, one metaphor they use is that lesser capable states will try to keep physical technology under wraps by keeping it out of the garage from where it came. I mean, like you can see a ve- there's like a very clear attempt to to, to do a rhetorical thing where they keep invoking Silicon Valley, they keep invoking digital world, they keep invoking this idea of glean and, and sleek innovation coming from the digital, coming from technology, and not actually analyzing or understanding what's going on with the labor, what's going on with the political economy, what's going on with the re- what's actually going on with the regulation. I mean, to call to call labor law violators cloud-based regulators is so fucking stupid. That it's hard to want to keep going through this thing and take it seriously. <laughs> it's it's one of the dumbest things, and it's not even the top three dumbest things he says in this thing. It, I mean, it's also extremely telling as well that like the labor issues and labor backlash has gotten to such a boiling point that that uh, these people can no longer ignore it, right? But rather than uh, actually legitimize or validate these concerns, they instead want to try to co-opt them and they want to point to, you know, their, their, the latest deus ex machina, in this case, you know, uh, DAOs and Web3 and 
crypto protocols, whatever the fuck that means, as ways of being like, yeah, no, we understand like labor issues are a problem here, but the only or the and the best way forward to actually gain worker power and secure labor rights is not through these old stodgy institutions like, you know, unions, uh, you know, cooperatives, uh, you know, solidarity, uh, you know, uh, militant labor action. No, 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 no. All of that, all of that is old fashioned. What you need to look to instead is, and I quote, crypto protocols by contrast allow millions of active participants, both customers and producers in a market to develop decentralized regulatory mechanisms that avoid both the perils of captured state regulators and corporate self-regulators. It is only a matter of time before cloud-based entities emerge for decentralized regulation of industries beyond cryptocurrencies. In other words, to try to parse the impenetrable word salad uh, of that of those sentences you know this is what like like uh, that that long thread by Li Jin, right one of the the venture capitalists who was like you know DAOs are actually a way forward for worker uh, unions right this is the future of unionizing is to do it on a DAO no bullshit right like I mean we don't that that thread was roundly dunked on uh, uh, on Twitter uh, rightfully so we don't need to get into it here but it is really evidence of be careful when venture capitalist uh, and the futurist uh, uh, in the pocket of capital like Parakana um, you know come selling snake oil being like, I got I got the tools for worker power, labor rights. Not no, not 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 these unions. Set aside your Marxism. Drop your capital volume one. Drop that communist manifesto. Drop it. Drop it. All right. Now pick up pick up this DAO. Pick up these crypto yeah. protocols. I mean, know? literally, that's what he's arguing for. Loki, he's like, he's, I mean, the, is the vague argument, the vague implication here is that DAOs are going to replace corporations and state regulators. So the DAO will replace the FDA. The DAO will, a DAO will replace the FFA. The DAO will replace the SEC um, because these things were made to regulate very specific corporations right and they are stodgy they don't really take into account the full breadth and beauty of of the uh economy as he says the people running these institutions typically have career tenure they were not democratically elected and are not easily fired they are thus not obviously accountable to the public they claim to serve another way we can flip that is that venture capitalists who sit on hordes of capital are not democratically elected, they're not easily fired, they're not obviously accountable to the public that they claim to serve, why the fuck should they be allowed to sit together with some so-called futurist and plan out a future society? Why should they be allowed to invest their money to try to realize a new society, right? Well, they have their arguments, blah, 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 and we have ours for why it might be a good idea to have institutions that are not on the marketplace. We become... Uh, pawns and collateral damage in one uh, one segment of capital trying to do a coup on the other yeah. segment of capital. 
That's all it is. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. The pro- There's a property rights one. It's a very stupid one. It's just saying that property rights have become encryption, right? It just says that like now you don't really need a state to protect you and because no amount of violence can solve certain kinds of math problems. It's literally like, what if John Locke was on the blockchain? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, it's like, okay, we'll gloss over that one. Sure, dude. I don't really want to. I'm trying to get to the juice here. Um, seven, international rule of law is becoming rule of code. Um, see our episode on smart contracts. This is, uh, this is a really an attempt uh, by him to argue that rule by code specifically the Bitcoin and Ethereum blockchains, uh, is ideal and uh, should be prioritized. Right? Quote, intellectual property is already being codified on blockchain ledgers, beginning with non-fungible tokens, <laughs> bringing transparency <laughs> to what has been a fragmented legal process. If your argument rests on NFTs, you're fucked. You're fucked. I don't need to really elaborate on that. <laughs> NFTs are some of the messiest developments, messiest assets, they're not even really fully formed as an asset class that, are, that the legal frameworks aren't fully formed, that we're not even really fully sold on or have a consensus on how they'll be used, what kind of use cases they have, what like to what extent they should proliferate, but they're property, right? Whatever. Jeremy just threw in the chat, more like John Locke chain. Bro, <laughs> yeah. you need to, you, that, that's a startup. You, Balaji would invest millions into <laughs> just, just on that name alone, Locke chain. <laughs> I'm going to do the website right now. <laughs> <laughs> This brings us to number eight, which is uh, one of the dumbest parts of it. Web3 is addressing global inequality by sharing the reward and the risk. While physician and professor Hans Rosling and others have documented how global inequality is actually falling, the issue remains a hot topic for Western countries, which have seen their net worth remain stagnant, even as others, particularly countries in Asia, rise. The most promising way to resolve this may be web via Web3 protocols, which can be thought of as a variant of universal basic income that splits the reward and the risk of building a giant tech service across millions of volunteer asset holders. Put another way, if the roughly $5 trillion total market cap of Alphabet, Meta, Apple, Amazon, and Microsoft were split across a billion users to give them around $5,000 each, they'd be much more supportive. Most of the funding for Web3 protocols has not come from established tech companies. Bitcoin was coded by a pseudonymous founder who took no venture capital investment. Ethereum was started by a college dropout who crowdfunded the startup capital online. And with the rise of decentralized finance, there is now an incredible variety of financing mechanisms to allow smart people with no money to find smart people with money to build tools that allow all people to make money. And that is how Web3 may accomplish what no antitrust action, arbitrary seizure could. I want you to note that this section with its bombastic rhetoric does not offer a single concrete 
or even a nebulous example of what the fuck Web3 is going to do about global inequality, even though it spends all these paragraphs insisting it will. How? Let's, let's talk about the $5 trillion example. Listener, how does market cap work? Can you take Mark? Can you take it? Can you take the five trillion dollars of Alphabet, Meta, Apple, Amazon, and Microsoft, and just divvy it up to a billion users and give them five thousand dollars each? I'll let you know. I'll let you think on that. Uh, can you do that in our, this system? No. Can you do that in a Web three system? Theoretically, what would that actually look like? Would that be something that is tied? Like, a, Because when you dig into it, it gets a little complicated. Are you going to try to tie it to a cryptocurrency? Are you Are going to tie it to a fiat currency? Or if you're tying it to a fiat currency, is it going to be a taxable thing? If it's not going to be a taxable thing, how the fuck are you going to sell that? If you are not, is this only going to be to the, if this is going to be to the users and not the shareholders, then what are the shareholders going to get uh, for this you know, dividend or this uh they, they probably won't even call it a dividend. What do you call it? A universal basic income to the to the user base instead of the shareholders. Like, where is the value coming from? Where is the value going? And if we're adhering to the capitalist logic here, right? Who's and if are the shareholders actually going to get behind that? Right? I don't think there's any reason to believe that they would. But they use it as an example that not to be taken seriously, but to establish the sort of rhetorical, like, wouldn't that be nice? We could do that. So then you try to do it, and you realize you can't actually do it, and it has to be much lesser. I mean, it really shows, uh, so like I heard this theory that like, you know, NFTs are premised on the theory of the infinite fool, right? That you buy a thing for, uh, you know, an NFT for $5,000. And then the uh, assumption is that there's a greater fool than you who will buy it from you for $50,000. And then there's an even greater fool who will buy it for $100,000. And even greater fool who, you know, so on and so on, right? Like, that's what the real value of NFTs are, is the speculation that there's an even greater fool than you who will buy it off, buy the thing off, the worthless thing off of you for even more than you paid for it. They are essentially doing, uh, they're running a play on us here because that, that example of the market cap, I, I have to assume, considering their pedigrees, that Balaji Srinivasan and Prakana know what a market cap is, right? Market capitalization is the total value of all stocks, uh, of, of, of all a company's shares of stocks, right? So is the idea here that you just give every single person one share of stock in these companies? No, we liquidate the companies is that and how no you one owns it? it. Yeah, I don't, I mean, there's, I'm sure there are ways to do it, but they don't make sense if you actually, if you step back and actually think about it. Where is the value for the UBI coming from if you're going to give it to the users? And is it coming out of the value that's going to the shareholders? It's an argument based on uh, playing us as fools, believing that we don't actually know what market capitalization means, that we don't know how these things work. And you know what? I think it's because they don't know how it works, right? They don't know. That's also why, as you were saying, right, like this whole section on how Web3 uh, is going to uh, uh, you know, redistribute uh, and, and address global inequality doesn't actually have any details. That's also why um, nothing about Web3, about blockchain, about DAOs, none of this has ever, none of these claims ever have solid details. It's all baseless. It's all faith-based. It really is a religion. It's a cult where I've seen people very, you know, people that are taken seriously on Twitter and stuff talk about how like actually uh, the environmental impacts of, of blockchain and cryptocurrencies will sort themselves out if you just let, if you just, if you just give it time. 
don't I don't know how, but I believe in my heart of hearts that it will. Uh, and people take that as a little safety blanket, right? Where they say, "All right, I have faith. I have, fa- I, I have faith that this that this will happen. That Web three will address global inequality. Cryptocurrencies will sort out their environmental damage. Uh, I have faith in this because if we just let the machine go." The machine can never stop. If we let this machine run, then all of the kinks will work themselves out. All the problems will work themselves out. And all the rewards uh, will be realized and we will enter the kingdom of heaven. Never any details about how that actually happens. It really is uh, trying to amanitize the eschaton, right? Uh It's trying uh to bring about Uh the end of the world in the hopes that when the rapture comes, they will be saved, uh, uh, you know, and, and, the, and the rest of us may not be, but they will be. And, and it really is about fooling us into just giving them more time, giving them more faith, trusting in the process, trust in the process, Ed. Uh, but they, they have no details, they have no dates, they have no descriptions of any note or worth to actually provide about how anything they claim will happen will actually happen. But on the flip side, we have a lot of arguments and empirical facts uh, about how the exact opposite will happen and already is happening. I mean, there's a reason why our podcast is called This Machine Kills and not This Machine Rolls On. (laughs) That's right. Right. (laughs) This machine saves. (laughs) You know, (laughs) and you bring it. I mean, that's exactly, I really don't even need to really dwell too much on this next one. Companies, cities, currencies, communities, and countries are all becoming networks. Again, he offers no actual example of how any of that is happening and instead uses a metaphor, a bad metaphor to basically opening up saying that, you know, we used to think of books, music, and movies as distinct, but then they all became represented by packs, packets sent over the internet. And that, you know, today we think of stocks and bonds and gold and loans and art is different, but you know, pretty soon they're going to be represented, uh, represented as debits and credits on blockchains. Right. And we need to start thinking about people, uh, in ways where they can be represented as networks, right? That are not constrained by temporal or spatial dimensions, you know, by network proximity. He gives examples of Bitcoin City, of Wyoming's Dow Law, of Miami Coin and New York City Coin, and then the, you know, sort of obligatory disclosure that they're backing those projects as examples for how networks are going to be rising up in these places and how we're going to be able to run. Um, physical governments with companies and digital networks on apps. Ed, but what if what if slave owners had the blockchain? You put people on the blockchain. I think that if slavery was on the blockchain, the Civil War never would have happened. Um, <laughs> you know, whether that is uh, good or bad depends on your politics. <laughs> and um, I know, you know, I think it's be. Uh, I think the Civil War needs to happen and go far enough, right? They should have burned. They should have burned a little bit more. Um, but I digress. The the thing here is that, you know, what this guy wants or what they're pitching essentially is vaguely the idea that you'll be able to run the city like an app, which also implies, you know, the, the sort of digitization, the privatization and the extraction of profits and rents that, you know, are sure to come if you convert a city to an app. And that, you know, even though they gave no concrete example of what these cities are actually doing, 
They vaguely say like, look, you know, it'll put everything on an equal playing field, it'll allow it to automate corporate actions, it'll allow it for global investment, it'll allow for economic planning. And it, you know, none of this is actually happening, but whatever. Um, brings us to the final, dumbest, uh, stupidest part of this whole thing. Um, it is powers decentralizing away from the United States and China. Okay. How? About 75% of the world's population, more than 60% of global GDP, and around 50% of all billionaires are neither Chinese nor American. These two superpowers may well fight, but it's not obvious if the rest of the world will want to align with either party. Indeed, with the rise of decentralized protocols, we anticipate that many states in the middle may decide to use Bitcoin. Ethereum, or other chains for China and U.S.-resistant communication and financial transaction channels. That is, in addition to building national stacks, data and app ecosystems, for domestic transactions and communications, countries may use neutral protocols for international transactions and communications. This gives every country a choice. Rather than being forced to take sides in a new Cold War, they can update the non-aligned movement to form an aligned movement where they rally around their joint sovereign stakes and Web3 protocols to facilitate cross-border trade. Early signs of this are already visible within Latin American countries adopting Bitcoin. Not incidentally, such protocols will also command the respect and investment of many millions of Chinese and American citizens. How? What the fuck? (laughs) One reason why that's uh, incredibly idiotic to think about or to consider as one thing is the fact that there's no what happened what happened to the non-aligned movement did the non-aligned movement simply fuzz out uh, because it was because it had to make a choice or was there a very ruthless campaign to force did the non-aligned movement just you know throw its hands up and say i guess we have to make a choice or were they forced to at gunpoint uh, through very systemic, bloody campaign by the West uh, to choose a fucking side. And if not choose a side, then lose your fucking leaders, right? Or lose your fucking country or have like all sorts of, how many coups, how many sanction regimes, how many wars were fought or targeted countries that tried to not make a choice? I mean, the idea here that you that all they simply have to do is adopt Bitcoin and Ethereum is a little ridiculous. But it's also is where we see like, as Morozov talks about, maybe we can gloss over a little bit in his TNR review. Um, you know, Broadcon is not really, you know, kind of a charlatan of a geopolitical guy, right? Who for years tried to fancy himself as like the next Kissinger um, and wrote a, you know, Morozov has a really biting, really vicious review um, from about 2011, 2012 of uh, what he calls a pamphlet. It's a book that he wrote, but he wouldn't even really call it a book. and um it was published through ted and you know i'm much um and the ted conference which in of themselves were this whole sort of you know at the time a little bit of a racket uh, that prakana was taking advantage of and he was transitioning to technology right and uh morizov wrote it might seem odd that prakana would turn his attention to the world's technology he established his reputation as a wannabe geopolitical theorist, something of a modern-day Kissinger only wired and cool. For almost a decade, he's been writing pompous and alarmist books and articles that herald a new era in international relations. He has also been circling the globe in a tireless effort to warn world leaders that democracy might be incompatible with globalization and capitalism, and that the West needs to be more like China and Singapore. 
and that America is running on borrowed time and that our new middle ages are about to set in. Quote, when I look at the 21st century, I reverse the numbers around and I see the 12th century. This is probing stuff. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> It's also very telling that Parag Khanna uh, and, and his, his uh, wife, who co- I think co-wrote this pamphlet, yeah, Aisha Khanna, yeah, Parag Khanna and Aisha Khanna, they, they lived for a long time, I don't know if they still do, in Singapore. Like, they held up Singapore as the model uh, for, for, for states, right? Like, like yeah, I mean, it's, it's the same kind of bullshit we've talked about before of like, you know, the like hyper authority, like techno authoritarian, tech, like cyber libertarian, uh, you know, politics of exit, right? Like, uh, you know, you know, city states, you know, smart city states, uh, all of this kind of bullshit, right? It's like, you know, what the, what the world look needs to look like in their model is essentially just a, a network of Singapore's, you know, operating as DAOs, right? Like that's, that to them is what the, what the geopolitics of the future needs to and should look like. This is what they mean by, you know, the non-aligned movement, right? And we, you know, you mentioned it, they mentioned it, right? Like for, for people who don't know, right? The non-aligned movement was, uh, this group of 120 developing, um, uh, developing world states that are during the like Cold War that were not formally aligned with or against uh, the major power blocks of the U.S. or the USSR, right? They were they were non-aligned. They were Switzerland countries, right? But you know, all these you know these countries were uh, in Central and South America, Africa, uh, and 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 Asia, right? Southeast Asia in particular. You know, as you said, right? Like, oh, uh, you mean you mean a lot of the places where there were coup, where the CIA was insanely active, where there were coups, you know, all that stuff. You know, it's bullshit for them to think that like the, the response to the, the, you know, the new conditions of geopolitics is an aligned movement of a, of a bunch of networked Singapore's dotted around the world, uh, uh, marshalling us into the future through a decentralized, democratized, blah, blah, blah. All these things that ironically, uh, are not values represented whatsoever in Singapore, right? Uh, a very centralized authoritarian, uh, city state. Again, as I said, top of show baffles the mind. That right. one could continue to hold these ideas, espouse them so seriously, and be taken serious for it. And that's why he's really fascinating because he, this there's a very clear line between like the the charlatan bullshit he was hucking as a geopolitical theorist and the charlatan bullshit he's hucking now. I mean, he's using more or less the same phrases, right? I'll keep cribbing for Morozov here because I think his you know his takedown he puts it much better than I can. Kana's contempt for democracy and human rights aside, he is simply an intellectual imposter, emitting such lethal doses of banalities, inanities, and generalizations that his books ought to carry advisory notices. Take this precious piece of advice from his previous book, the modestly titled How to Run the World, which is quite representative of his work. Quote, the world needs very few, if any, global organizations. What it needs is far more fresh combinations of existing actors who coordinate better with one another, which if you remember, that sounds pretty much exactly like how he thinks DAOs are going to play into this picture and crypto protocols and decentralized governance and all this nonsense. How this A-list networking would stop climate change, cybercrime, or trade in exotic animals is never specified. Kana does not really care about the details of policy, check. He is a manufacturer of abstract, meaningless slogans, check. He is indeed the most 
talented, bullshit artist of his generation, and this confers upon him a certain anthropological interest. The technological <laughs> turn in Kana's thought is hardly surprising. As he and others have discovered by now, one can continue fooling the public with slick, ahistorical gerrymands on geopolitics by serving them with coarse but tasty sauce. That is the cyber wig theory of history. The recipe is simple. Find some peculiar uh, global trend. The more arcane, the better. Draw a straight line connecting it to the world of apps, electric cars, and the Bay Area venture capital. Mention robots, Japan, and cyber war. Use shiny slides that contain incomprehensible but impressive maps and visualizations. Serve well. Serve on multiple platforms. With their never-ending talk of Twitter revolutions and the like, techno-globalists such as Kana have a bright future ahead of them. And then goes through it. I mean, the book that he publishes at the time through time. Lo and behold, Morozov was correct (laughs) that they do have a bright future ahead of them. This was 10 years ago. And Mm -hmm. everything that you just read from that paragraph from Morozov, uh, it still holds. He's still doing the same old shit, the same old recipe. Again, a true indictment of our society that these, that these people do actually have strong and continuous careers hucking the same old shit. I mean, it's, 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 it's really ridiculous. I mean, it's just like, I think con, when you look at his analysis commits, all the sins and by extension, Balaji, all the sins of every sort of techno analysis that, and techno political analysis, right? This argument that, Technopolitics uh, displaces geopolitics. Why is that? It's because technology is more powerful than the physical world or has more control over the physical world. Why is that? Um, Because technology is a disruptive. Why is that? Because it has more control over the physical world and because it's, and because of how much more effective on the material world it has ended up becoming. Why is that? Because technology is disruptive. It's a tautological <laughs> thing. And then when you dig down to it, why are certain technologies used as opposed to others? That is never a question that emerges in his mind. There's no question about the history of things or the political economy of things. People use technology because the technology is more advanced, right? Why, like in earlier books, he has written that he he has no conception of why the military uses this or that tech. Why did it? You know, as 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 one example in hybrid reality in the review of Amorzov has, you know, why is it that Washington uses certain tools like drones or flame or Stuxnet? Is it because specific constraints on military policy? Is it because of geopolitical concerns? No, it's because the technology is good. Stupid. I mean, it's just stupid. Like technology for him is autonomous. Tech, uh, you know, he commits the grand sin, one of the grand sins that we've talked about, by treating technology as a thing out there that you have to harness and plug into and try to corral and control, and not a consequence of the material world. While constantly harping on about how it is connected to the physical world, so he just views it as like a massive sandworm that emerges from the deep. That you have to latch onto and hope you can steer into your domain. It's just, it's ahistorical, it's apolitical, and it's stupid. That is a perfect way to cap off this episode. There's nothing more to be said. Uh, and you know, frankly, we've we've given the this article and these people way more too much time. attention, you way know? more time and attention than they deserve. Um, but in the, in is, the premium, we'll, the, we'll, in the premium, we'll actually like flesh out 
more crit- more crypto critiques. We'll 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 have we'll have crypto arguments that deal with people who make better arguments but are still wrong, right? <laughs> well, no, in the in the premium, we're going to give time and attention to someone who actually deserves it uh, because we're doing the last chapter of Windy HK Chun. Control. Sorry, the next, the next next premium, the next next yes. premium, or we'll we'll talk about crypto, or another episode we'll talk about. Oh yeah, there, uh, the there's crypto. more coming down the pipeline. Absolutely, I mean, all this is also just us uh, gearing up, get, getting some acceleration going, and in, in preparation for Evgeny Morozov's uh, new blockbuster essay that we are hungrily waiting for uh, and eagerly uh, waiting to discuss. So, I, I think with that, I'm going to call to an end. Uh, this episode of TMK. Um, so thank you all for listening. You can find us at patreon.com slash this machine kills. As we just mentioned, premium episode this week is we're doing the last chapter of Wendy HK Chun's Control and Freedom. So we're wrapping that up. Uh, we, and we've got you know a whole backlog of awesome essays, many of which are two-parters for big investigations and analyses that we've done. So catch all that on the premium feed. Just $5 a month will get you access. So catch us there or see us next week with more free episodes to come. Until then, later. Later. later.